1 Peter chapter 5 this evening, we're going to be in understanding godliness again. First Peter chapter number 5 is where we are this evening, preaching on humility. Joking with Jason, Graham spent the day at our house today and the boys thoroughly enjoyed it. Many of their buddies come over, but after dinner we had just a little bit more time to kill, and so I was done and ready, ready for church. And I said, "Graham, you want to play a video game with me?" And I, I beat my son pretty soundly at the video game, and so he said, "Sure, Pastor, bring it on." Right? I said, "Oh, you don't want to go to church and tell everybody you lost in a football game to Pastor?" I said, "You, you, you don't want to tell people that." But I'll play with whatever team you give me. He gave me some stinky team, and he took my Bengals. I know all their plays when I play them, too. And I was thoroughly humbled by a teenager. <laughs> and it was even worse because Drew's sitting there because I usually whoop him pretty good. He was going, come on, Graham, come on, Graham, rub it in, Graham, rub it in, Graham. And I thought, I think I'm preaching on humility tonight, but I'm not sure. And so I learned my plays very quickly. First Peter chapter number 5, verses 5, 6, and 7, the Bible says this. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, of the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth. Father, help us this evening as we look at this idea of humility and particularly how it applies to godliness and how it helps us understand what it's like to live a godly life. How necessary it is for the godly life. Give us your grace as we've sung of this evening to understand these truths in Jesus' name. Andrew Murray, great author, said this of humility. Humility is not so much a grace or virtue along with others. It is the root of all. Because it alone takes the right attitude before God and allows him as God to do all. It is simply the sense of entire nothingness which comes when we see how truly God is all. And in which we make him for God to be all. In our lives. So how do you study the topic of humbleness or being humble? I mean, humility, after all, is not an outward work. You cannot walk around telling everybody how humble you are. It is an action or a way of acting, we might say, but it all starts as an attitude of the heart. It's the way in which we think. It is how you think of yourself less and how often you think of God and of others. That is the true note of your humility. Moses and his humility is highlighted for us in Numbers chapter 12. His humility is displayed in his intimate relationship with and by his submissive attitude towards the sovereign and almighty God. You can study this in great detail in Numbers chapter 12 verses 1 through 9. Where Miriam and Aaron are questioning Moses' authority. And friend, it's a bad idea to question the authority that God has placed in your life for your good and for his glory. But Miriam and Aaron do so. They ask very arrogantly this question 
Numbers 12 and verse 2. Has the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Has he not spoken also by us? And the answer, by the way, was yes, in certain seasons God had used both of them. But Moses was the leader, and they had failed in the arena of humility. And they go on and say, and the Lord heard it. In other words, haven't we spoken and the Lord has heard it? God describes Moses this way in the very next verse, in verse number three. Now, the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. Friend, if God says that about you, it's true. Moses, with all the complaining and all the contempt from the other leaders, merely led with humility from Egypt to the wilderness and to the promised land. Yes, he had his failures and his faults, and that kept him from entering the promised land, but he was a humble soul. He was a man who lived by humility. He understood godliness in the way that it should be lived in a person's life. In the New Testament, of course, Christ is the model for humility for the Christian. He says this in Matthew 11, verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. A lot of us do not have rest in our lives because we are filled with our own pride. The Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs, only by pride cometh contention. Philippians, Paul tells us there and speaks of our Savior Jesus Christ in chapter 2 and verses 6, 7, and 8, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And being, and being found in fashion as a man, he, what, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This evening. What I want us to do in understanding godliness is to understand humility. We will both form it, furnish it, and foster that humility as we seek to understand godliness. And so we begin with recognizing our sinfulness. How do I become humble? I become humble by recognizing I'm a sinner. Now, we don't want to strut around as if we're proud peacock sinners, but I mean in the sense that my sins sent Jesus Christ to Calvary. It is my sins that need to be saved. It is my sinfulness that needs to be redeemed. Knowing that you're a sinner forms the basis for Christian humility. The self-righteous person lifts himself up in pride and forgets that he or she is but a sinner saved by grace. Sin causes us to become disappointed when we have failed God. In reality, however, recognizing sin in our life and knowing that's what we have been saved from should cause us to humble ourselves before God that he has been gracious to us at all. God does not want angry outbursts over the realization of sin in our lives. He wants us to humbly submit to his spirit through open confession of our sin. Friends, if you are aware of your sinfulness, repent of it. That is the surest way to remain humble. Recognize your own sinfulness. One author has written it this way. Humility is the spontaneous recognition of the creature's absolute dependence on his creator. He goes on another portion of his writing to say, Humility is the logical outcome of sin consciousness. 
It's the natural outflow of knowing that I'm a sinner is that I deserve nothing but hell. But I get everything of God in salvation. Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 33 says, Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts shall lop the bow with, the ter with terror, and the high ones of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled. I think I accidentally wrote Jeremiah 10 and verse 33. That was for a Sunday sermon. You'll see Jeremiah later. This is Isaiah 10 and verse 33 in your notes there. Peter's admonition in 1 Peter 5 is that you and I are to be clothed in humility. But in our natural man, we are clothed in haughtiness, not humility. And Isaiah the prophet warns Israel that the haughty is going to be humbled. And that humility begins by understanding our own sinfulness, who we are. Proverbs 18 and verse 12, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, and before honor is humility. There's two things as we recognize our sinfulness then this evening that we must note. Letter A is our condemnation. We must recognize our condemnation. John chapter number 3, verses 17, 18, and 19, not verse 16, but beginning in verse 17, talks about the state of the, that we're in. It talks about the condemnation that is upon us. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. It's the natural state of man, in other words, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You and I have no hope of relationship with God in our own sinfulness. Sin always brings God's wrath. It always will be condemned. And so if there is sin in your life, it's not something to be proud of. It's something to put away something to put off. The great passage in Micah is where we often turn. Micah declares Israel's sinfulness towards God. Take your Bibles and turn back there. Hold your place here. We'll finish tonight in 1 Peter chapter number 5. But back to the Old Testament prophet of Micah. It's a passage that as we come to it and as we read it, we know the verse that we're going to talk about and it's in verse number 8 of chapter 6. So go to chapter 6, but Building our way there and understanding humility, Micah declares Israel's sinfulness towards God in chapters 1 through 5. He effectively lays out the case against Israel. In verses 1 through 5 of chapter 6, God frames Israel's typical response. In verses 6 and 7, he actually, in verses 6 and 7, uses Balaam's response to Balak. Which is not recorded in the book of Numbers, but God records it here under the prophet's hand. In attempt to curse Israel, he says, there's not much I can do. I, I can bring thousands of rams to the altar, but if God's not in it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how pious I might try to be, it's not going to change God's opinion. I have to humble myself. And we find then in Micah 6 and verse 8 that God establishes how to please him. It is that we must love mercy, it is that we must do justly, and it we, it's, it's that we must walk humbly with our God. Here's how he answers it. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with thy God. Micah goes on in this passage and warns the wicked of Israel that the wickedness that they engage in 
would rob them in verse number 13 of their health. He says this in verse 13, Therefore also will I make thee sick in smiting thee, and making thee desolate because of thy sins. It will rob them of their hopes. In verse number 14, he says, Thou shalt eat, but not be satisfied, and thy casting down shall be in the midst of thee. Thou shalt take hold, but thou shalt not deliver. And that which thou deliverest will I give up to the sword. In other words, whatever you've earned, whatever you've worked for, he said, because you will not humble yourself, because you will continue in your sins, instead, he said, I will take it from you. Their wickedness, rather than their humility, robs them of their health, their hopes, and in verse number 15, of their harvest. He says, thou shalt sow, but thou shalt not reap. Thou shalt tread the olives, but thou shalt not anoint thee with oil and sweet wine, but shalt, but shalt not drink wine. In other words, they will be trying to harvest their goods, and because they will not humble themselves before God, they are robbed of these three. They can expect little good from their sinful past, nor any good in their sinful present, God tells them. It is the conviction of sin that is important for us as believers. If we're going to understand godliness, if we're going to understand how we walk as God would walk in this world, as godly Christians, we always have to live with an understanding, a knowledge of our own state of condemnation without Christ. That really gives you the perspective that you need. You are nothing. I am nothing without Jesus Christ. The deceitful lie taught in many churches today is that God loves you and you don't have to change who you are. That is a haughty spirit and the fullness of pride at its zenith. God loves you. Yes, that is true. But he had to die because of the way we were and because of the sins that we still commit. That's why he had to die. That is the humbling element in understanding our sinfulness. Our condemnation. Sin condemns, and that should humble us, but we also are humbled, whether it be by our condition. Paul sums it up, and we'll not turn there. I want you to stay here in Micah, because I'm going to look at chapter 7 in just a moment. But Paul in Romans chapter 7 sums up the believer's condition battling sin in verses 14 through 24. In that particular passage, you will see an honest and humble distress of a sinner who is saved by grace, who is still struggling with his present condition, having a sinful nature and a spiritual nature still within him, and the war that goes on. That is the kind, by the way, of understanding of our condition. That is the kind of humility that is necessary to be victorious. Yes, there is a sinful man within us. In fact, here's what he says in verse number 14, or 18, and verse number 24. He says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, that is in my sinfulness, dwelleth no good thing. Paul had good perspective. He was humble. For to will is present with me. I want to do what's right. Have you ever parents had to discipline or correct your children? And you can see in their faces and their eyes that they wish they had never done that thing they did, which was wrong. But guess what they can't do? Change their condition. They're still guilty. This is what Paul is struggling with. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. It's not that it's past finding out. It's able to be found out. It's just in that moment, in that condition of sinfulness, he continued in the sin. 
and grace did abound, but not to his joy and rejoicing. He was humbled and he found himself constantly in a state of sinfulness. We come to the end of chapter 7 of Romans and he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, I don't have a Lord. He just says, thanks be to God. And that is Jesus Christ is Lord. This is a humble and healthy attitude for every Christian. Understand our condition of condemnation if there was no salvation. A humble and obedient realization, recognition that we are sinners saved by grace. Humility in godliness is formed by recognizing we're sinners. It is furnished. Humility is then furnished in our life. In other words, it's built up by rejoicing, number two, in salvation. By rejoicing in salvation. There's a great lesson to be learned in our salvation. It is why religion is wrong. If I can earn heaven through my good works or penance, then I have every reason to boast in my own salvation. If I can actually earn it. Then I have every reason to walk around and say, I'm better than you. I've earned more than you have. I am going to get a big reward in heaven. But the Bible says just the opposite of that. There is no boasting except for in the Lord. There's nothing you've done to earn salvation. Boy, that's humbling. Sometimes it just hurts your pride. You think, well, I'm a pretty good person. Jesus got a deal when he got me. And God says, no. It cost me my son. Paul defines true salvation this way in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should what? Boast. Keeping us here in Micah, the reason I didn't have you turn back. The prophet answers God and Israel in chapter from chapter number 6 in chapter number 7. We find him repenting and looking to God's salvation because there's no hope of salvation in them themselves. Their path to success was to humble themselves before the mighty God. And we pick up our reading in verse number 7 of chapter 7. He says this, Therefore, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. This is the remnant in the last day rejoicing. Rejoice not against me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he plead my cause and execute judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light, and I shall behold his righteousness. Then she that is my enemy shall see it, and shame shall cover her which said unto me, Where is the Lord thy God? My enemies shall behold her. Now shall she be trodden down as the mire of the street. In the day that thy walls are to be built, in that day shall the decree be far removed. We find that in humility, Israel and we find forgiveness. Put these in your notes here underneath this first thought, I think. Maybe I didn't. It brings forgiveness. In verses 12 through 17, the humility for Israel doesn't just bring forgiveness, it brings victory. Look what he says in verse number 12. In that day also, he shall come even to thee from Assyria, from the fortified cities, from the fortresses, even unto the, to the river, and from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain, notwithstanding, the land shall be desolate because of them that dwell therein for the fruit of their doings. In other words, their wickedness has ruined the land. 
in this millennial kingdom, it will be restored. In verse 14, feed thy people with thy rod. The flock of thy heritage which dwell solitarily in the wood, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be confounded. At all their might, they shall lay their hand upon their mouth. Their ears shall be deaf. They literally will not be able to conceive or speak of the greatness of God, the victory that he will give to them. Verse 17, they shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of thee, Israel, God's chosen people. Humility brings them forgiveness. Humility brings them victory. But in verses 18, 19, and 20, humility brings them favor or God's grace. Verse 18, who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever. Because he delighteth in mercy. He is merciful to the humble, by the way. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob. By the way, the phrase Jacob, when it's used in prophecy, is a reference to them and their sinfulness. Israel is them in their promise. Jacob is Israel, or the children of Israel, in their fallen nature, in their natural man. And the, and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Remembering and rejoicing in your salvation will keep you humble because, letter A, of the greatness of that salvation. When you read what you read in Micah chapter 7, you realize it is a promise given to Israel in particular. But we can share in benefits the fact that God is going to return, that God is going to rule, that God is going to reward us. The writer of Hebrews said it this way in chapter 2 and verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? The greatness of salvation is found not in the greatness of those who are saved, but in the greatness in the person and character of the Savior himself. Salvation reminds us of the great holiness of God, the great equity and justice of God, the great wisdom of God, the great attributes of God. We lose our humility, we lo lose our lowly mindset when we begin to neglect or take advantage of the freedom from sin and death that we have gained in salvation. Paul to the Galatians said this, for brethren, you've been called unto liberty only Use not liberty at, for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. When we think we are free to do whatever we want because we're saved, we're lifted up in pride and are not far from open rebellion against Almighty God. Peter tells us that we are to be clothed in humility, literally that it is to be our robes that people see. That clothing of us in humility begins at that moment we take his robes of righteousness for our filthy rags, the moment of salvation. Salvation is so great because it changes us so completely. If your life hasn't changed, it's because you still have not been humbled as you ought to. You might be saved. But the growth pattern of a Christian is always closer to God and more into his image. And the only way that happens is when you are empty of yourself. That is humbling. Paul literally says it's dying to yourself. 
You're denying in every capacity your natural man and your natural choices. The old man of our sinful flesh, though present in us, is mortified, or at least it ought to be, in and through Christ. We do not have liberty to sin. We do have liberty to separate and live as Christ lived. Rejoice in the great salvation, but also in the grace that is in salvation, letter B. The greatness of salvation is actually seen in the grace of salvation. If you depend upon someone's grace, there's no merit then in yourself. If you have no way to get home and you're on the side of the internet, interstate, I'll just say internet, I'm not on the side of the internet or not, but on the side of the interstate, and I stop my car and I pick you up, probably not a wise decision, but if I know you, you are only at my mercy and grace to make it to your destination. There's nothing you've done to earn it. Sticking your thumb out, that's not required to pick you up. It's if I stop and pick you up, you are at my mercy and grace to get you where you're required or requesting to go. If you depend upon someone's grace, there is no merit in yourself. That is true of salvation as well. Humility clothes those, Peter implores, who understand that it is only by God's grace that we are redeemed, that we are right with him. And that ultimately we will be rewarded by, by from him, excuse me, with a heavenly home. James says it this way in James chapter 4. Do ye think that the scriptures say in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? You know where envy comes from, by the way? Go back one verse there for me, Terry. He's going to get you fancy. You know where envy is? Envy is just pride. The spirit, the mind of your natural man that is in you, it lusteth. It's continually envious of someone else and their position, their possession, their person. It is the idea of, I'm a little jealous of them. If you raise kids, you see it all the time. I can't believe they got what that I wanted, Dad. How come did they get that? <laughs> little kids are praying with me. thought that was funny. <laughs> Probably right. But if we exercise this kind of thinking towards others, by the way, it's not just the little ones that do it. It's all based in pride, not in humility. James goes on to say in verse number six, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Again, Andrew Murray, in his book, Humility, the Beauty of Holiness, says this, and I quote, In trials and weakness and trouble, God seeks to bring us low until we learn that his grace is all. And to take pleasure in the very thing that brings us and keeps us low. That's hard to think of. Because there's many things that I can identify in my own life and the lives of others that I try to be an under-shepherd to that bring us low, that hurt us. And the purpose God has in that for you is that you remember your frame, who you are, and who he is. 
Murray goes on to finish by saying this. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. His presence, his, excuse me, his presence filling and satisfying our emptiness becomes the secret of humility that will never fail us. Later, he says in another book, Humility and Absolute Surrender. The humble man has learned the secret of abiding gladness. The weaker he or she feels, the lower he or she sinks, and the greater his or her humiliations appear, the more power and presence of Christ are his or her portion. Think on that. When we see God's hand moving, and trouble abounds in a person's life, we often want to say, well, it's because of their sin. It might be just a refiner's fire, making us humble and usable. God can only use those who are truly humble before him. That's what we have to understand in godliness. Humility and godliness is formed by recognizing our sinfulness. It is furnished by rejoicing in salvation. But third and finally, it is fostered through real service. To foster something means to accommodate it, to make it possible. Serving takes away any delusion of personal importance or status. If you will serve another person, you very quickly will understand that you, in that moment, if you're doing it truly in service, are making them more important than you. If you just keep serving other people, you'll never have a problem with pride, and you'll never have a problem with true humility. Because you're looking to serve. Peter asks them to submit themselves one to another here in 1 Peter 5 and verse 5. He also talks of casting our cares, our trials, and our troubles of life upon him. That comes from service to Christ towards our fellow man. If you serve people, they will hurt you. Problems will exist. You will develop cares. It's okay. Keep you humble. If you walk away from serving somebody and go, well, they didn't even say thank you to me. Justin, I don't even know who to thank. But someone on Friday or Saturday put on my desk a whole bunch of gift cards. They didn't put any words in it. They just wrote with funny handwriting on the outside of the card and left us gas cards and and Chick-fil-A cards. We don't know what we did to deserve it, but that person is very humble, whomever they are, because they saw or felt that there was a need or a tiredness in us. And they don't want gratitude, so I can't give it to them. But they have focused on serving. There, there's many other examples. I'm just saying that's a fresh one in my mind as I was reviewing the sermon this week. The point is, when we serve other people, especially if you serve other people with no possible hope of being thanked or recognized publicly, you are doing it with the right spirit. Mm -hmm. You're doing it with humbleness, with humility. Take your Bibles and go back to John chapter 13. Some of you know in my office I have a picture of Jesus washing Peter's feet. And in the picture, the church years ago, it might have been for like the third or fourth anniversary. Somebody said, Pastor, do you, you know, one day Jason and Joel went down and got it. Back when Lifeway was still a thing. And uh, it was a picture. And they said, well, what would, what would you like? And I thought, you know what? I was in Lifeway the other day, and I saw a picture that I just love. And the church family for the church anniversary bought it, and I keep it in my office. I love it. I 
Edward's not here to defend himself, but he hates it because he said, I don't want to see any picture of the Lord until I get to heaven and see him face to face. Well, every time he comes to my office, he has to look at it. But the point is, it's there because as a pastor, this passage in John chapter 13 is the key to being a successful pastor. The ones that get in trouble, they might be pastors of big churches, but they get in trouble when their arm starts going this way. There's a reason your arm doesn't, God didn't design it to bend that way very well. John chapter number 13, beginning in verse 13, the Bible says, you call me master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I, then your Lord and master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than this Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them, or do them in like fashion. I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. And I tell you, before it come, that when it is to come, uh, when, excuse me, uh, let me bring my glasses down. When it has come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Jesus Christ was here clothed in humility. He walked humbly before his Father in heaven, and he served his church well. When Jesus got down on his knees to serve his disciples, it shocked them. So much so that they didn't know how to respond properly. Peter was all kinds of a hot mess. He said, Lord, you can't wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And then Peter says, wash me thoroughly. And Jesus said, no, I just need to wash your feet. Be quiet. Just listen to me. True humility is a moving thing. Humbles us as we see others humbly serving. It moves the person who has it and it motivates movement in those who observe it. An author named Stuart Scott wrote a book from Pride to Humility. In an excerpt in a chapter on the exemplary husband, he says this when someone is humble, they are focused on God and others, not self. Even their focus on others is out of a desire to love and glorify God. A humble person's goal is to elevate God and encourage others to like action. In short, they no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So two things, and we close. Humble service is for our God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. This kind of humble thinking changes our expectations but it does not change our effort. In other words, some people will work less diligently if they know that nobody's watching and they're not going to get credit for it. That's not a humble soul. There's no true humility in that. True humility says, I don't care who sees or who knows, I'm going to do my dead level best because I'm serving God and I know he's watching. Humble before him. When we serve, not expecting any praise, but from God one day, someday, then there will be no pride or hurt feelings when the rest of the world, the church, or even the pastor fails to notice what we've done. And that's how it sometimes happens, isn't it? He doesn't even know. By the way, most of the time you're probably right. I, 
try to observe as much as I can of those that do good in the church, but I can't see it all. Whatever we do, we do humbly for God's glory, is what 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us. And whatever positive impact on our ministry for God it has, he's the one that gets the glory, not us. Paul to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 15 says, And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. To the Philippians, Paul said this in chapter 3, For what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless that I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but dumb, waste, in other words, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, not my own pride puffed up haughtiness of how good I am in church, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Humility makes our service always to God. Let it be it for others' good. At the end of the Philippians in chapter 2, he says this, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Serving for the benefit of others with no personal ambition or personal aspiration is truly the blessed life for the believer in Christ. It is one who understands godliness. They're living in humility. Walking with God means walking in the similar footprints that Christ himself trod. Pride goes away. When my focus is on serving you for your betterment, it starts within the household of faith, according to Paul talking to Timothy, but it continues out to our fellow man in the world. Whom have you served this week? I mean, really served. If you recognize your sinfulness and you rejoice in your salvation, the next and final step that a Christian ought to be taking is real service to God and for others here. Closing, God has promised grace and goodness for the humble. So understanding godliness means, as Peter wrote, we must be clothed in humility. None of us would have come to church tonight unclothed. I reread the old Hans Christian Andersen, The Emperor's New Clothes. Nobody wanted to tell the emperor that the two shucksters, shysters, who had made the Fabrics that were not seen had not actually put clothes on him until some little kid said, you're naked. And the emperor realized, uh-oh. It took a lot of humility in that moment for the king to realize that. None of us would leave the house unclothed. But yet we leave so often without the clothing of God's humility on us. And so we go out into the world, or we go out into our married life, or we go out in raising our children into the work of life and ministry, not clothed with humility, but rather in our own pride and conceit, in our own haughtiness. The truly humble will glory in the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ and in the opportunities that they have to serve others. Father, help us.